Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. Today we'll finish Mark's account of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. This is an amazing text. It forces us to examine the gospel. There are many places in the New Testament which we could use to help define the gospel, but our current text gives us a really vivid picture of the elements essential to evangelism which are found throughout the New Testament. Remember that this section came right after Jesus again talked to his disciples about letting the children come into his presence. There is a contrast here between the simple childlike faith that he applauds as being genuine and real and the attitude conveyed by this young, rich ruler who seeks Jesus out. In Mark 10, verses 17 through 31, we see this rich young ruler eagerly approach Jesus with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately points this man to God's character, especially the holiness of God. He says, no one is good but God alone. Then Jesus preached the law of God in verse 19. Even though this man thought that he had kept the law from his youth, Jesus was able to point to the idol of the rich young ruler's heart, his great wealth and possessions. In other words, Jesus knew that this man's wealth was his real God. Again, it's so very easy to deceive ourselves into thinking our external obedience is all that's required or that that is how God will accept us or the basis upon which he loves us. What a lie. Notice that Jesus loved this man in our text. And the word there is the word agape. And we need to think about that throughout this whole message this morning. He loved this man, so he told him the truth about his heart condition. Next, we see Jesus call the man to repentance by telling him to go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the thing to really grab onto here is that this happened as Jesus was looking at him in love. That's the context upon which this was spoken. True repentance is more than just sorrowful confession. It's the change of a mind which issues into a definite turning away from sin as one, one, that's the key, as one turns to and embraces the Christ. The Christ who loves you before you ever try to obey him and get his acceptance. This man wants to know what he must do. What is he saying? What more must I do? I know I'm missing something. I've got to get myself perfect before you'll accept me, before I will earn eternal life. And that is not the truth. And Jesus is trying to show him how much he truly lacks, that he needs a Savior, that he will never be perfect. And he's going to get through to him. Another thing we've got to remember is that Jesus is not teaching here that every disciple of his must sell all of his possessions in order to follow him. Which, you know how people do. They read some part of the scripture, it hits them hard, and then all of a sudden there's this new whole belief system with followers thinking that that's the way. That's the way. 
But he is zeroing in on the one thing that this man could not part with, the one thing that he loved more than God, and the one thing he truly served with his whole heart. Jesus knows that anything which enslaves our heart's affections away from Christ will keep us from truly loving and serving and knowing him for who he really is, whatever that is. And isn't it Jesus who said no one can serve two masters? And that's what Jesus is really very gently getting across here. There's an illustration I found this week that I thought may help. It's simple, but it gets across the main point even of the Sunday school lesson this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and share it. It's not very long. You'll be able to fill in the blanks before I get two sentences of this out. A little girl, arms full of her toys and dolls, came into her parents' bedroom. Her dad, sitting on the bed, was beaming at the sight of his precious daughter, trooping into his room to see him. He invited her to jump up in the middle of all the pillows and covers. But she obviously couldn't carry out that maneuver without dropping all of her toys and dolls on the floor first. Frustrated, she grimaced a little bit and trooped back out of the bedroom, not content to drop her precious possessions in order to enjoy the presence and the love of her father. That's the whole message today, the whole story summed up in a very simple illustration. Jesus, in our text, immediately connects his call to repent with the call for faith. They're together. He says, come, follow me. And the rich young ruler could not believe. He could not exercise believing faith because he could not turn from his enslavement to his riches. He wasn't willing to believe in the one who truly is the Lord and Savior because he loves something else much, much more. Practical acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship, which is yielding to his rule by following him, is the very fiber of saving faith. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Repentance and faith have been described as being the two two sides of the same coin. They go together. John 3.36, John records this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on it. Which one do we latch on to? Depends on where you are in life. But we need to understand that these go together. Faith is not nodding your head to a series of facts. It is gladly and humbly entrusting yourself to Christ as your Lord and Savior who has done for you what you could never do for yourself. It's giving yourself to him, belonging to him, following him. Don't ever let this truth leave your consciousness. The kindness of God leads people to repentance, a quote from Sinclair this morning. The rich young ruler could not do anything to inherit eternal life. So Jesus applies one of God's laws that he knew would show the rich young ruler an area of his life that he couldn't measure up in. I don't know whether you noticed this, but we mentioned also that there are two tables of the law, the Ten Commandments in particular. The first table, the first part, the first half is about our relationship with God. 
You shall have no other gods before me, etc., etc., etc. The second half is about what? Your relationships with people. So, in Mark 12, where the man comes up and says, which commandment is the most important? We read that also. The most important is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Can you do the second without doing the first? Can you love your neighbor truly, genuinely, without having your relationship right with your God? No, you cannot. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's showing this man his need for a Savior by taking an area of pride that he was so proud proud of of external obedience in all these different areas. And then he showed him how the very last commandment, you shall not covet, was really the one that spoke to his big, big problem. So this man could not give himself to Christ because he belonged, get this, to his riches. His riches owned him. That's what's going on in this whole story. This passage has tremendous implications for the doctrine of assurance as well. In verse 22, we read one of the saddest lines in Scripture. We read, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. This passage in Mark 10 forces us to consider the implications of our own methods of evangelism. Doesn't it? It also makes us deal with the matters of assurance of salvation that we probably wondered about, but maybe haven't ever really gotten a good grasp of. So let's do some considering. In order to do this considering, you must be honest with the God who sees into your heart and knows every part of it. Most of today's, our days, signs of God saving a person are not entirely valid. The ruler went forward publicly, but he was not saved. He sincerely asked Jesus for eternal life but was not given that gift. He was visibly moved by the message of Christ, but he was not converted. He would have done very well in a Sunday school class or in choir's class, but he was as lost as ever. Notice something else that Jesus did not do that I mentioned last week at the end that flies in the face of, of so many evangelistic techniques. Jesus did not tell this man that all he had to do was pray a prayer and invite Jesus into his life. He did not pressure this man to pray that kind of a prayer. The problem with our thinking can be identified this way. So many Christians, when evangelizing, feel compelled to do the work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance. In other words, to close the deal. How many of us, and I would venture to guess many of us, have been trained to instruct the person praying the prayer to add this sentence, which is really addressed more to the person praying the prayer then to God, thank you for coming into my life and for hearing my prayer as you promised. Then you go to John 3.16 and substitute what? Your name for the name for the word world. Then the counselor assures the person with the authority of God that they've been saved. And then there's always a warning. 
not to sin against God by ever doubting their salvation, for that would be what? Calling God a liar. This kind of approach is a logical system, result of a system that really doesn't think it's necessary to present the character of God as holy. Preaches no law, calls for no repentance, waters down faith to accepting a gift that, by the way, is always, always, always only attractive in every sense, and never mentions bowing to Christ's rule or bearing a cross or that you need to belong to him. This method would have given the rich young man assurance before he left, wouldn't it? After all, he went forward. He went forward publicly. He would have prayed the right prayer. He did ask what he must do to inherit eternal life. And he did show grief. People may be deeply affected by truth without without ever being converted. In James 2, verse 19, we read, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. To tell this man that his request for life had been granted because God always grants salvation to those who verbally ask would have been a lie. That would be false assurance. And giving it is really eerily similar to what the false prophets told Israel. Back in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, God says this. They, talking about the false prophets of Israel, have healed the wound of my people lightly. In other words, not at all. Quote, saying, quote, peace, peace on you when there is no peace. See his point? Now, if this man had come to you and asked you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Would you have answered by saying, just invite him? In and just pray. If so, I think I need to ask, will you rethink that now? Whose work is it then to assure the hearts of God's children? It's the Holy Spirit's work. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 John 3, verse 24, And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Part of the way the Holy Spirit does this is through our own examining of ourselves in the light of God's word. That's the important part. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home within. And there will be Evidence as evidence of genuine faith. Not as a way to say you deserve to be saved or have eternal life, but as evidence of the faith that you place in Christ by giving yourself to Him, trusting Him. And that faith, that evidence will come at some point In God's time, and it's called, one of the things it's called in the Bible is what? Fruit. 
Matthew 7, 17, every healthy good tree bears good fruit. Matthew 12, 33, for the tree is known by its fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, they're listed, but the fruit of the Spirit. And you notice all these really go together even though they're distinct. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now this doesn't mean that there won't be tremendous struggle in the Christian life. But there will be fruit in the midst of struggle or not. The Bible's promises about assurance never lead us to expect that we're accepted by God without us also being renewed, made alive to a new life that has aptly been described as a life of repentance that leads to holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. We're learning more and more that most of us, all of us, are wired to think that it's on our merit, our words, our external obedience that makes us right before God. He will accept us more. He will love us. He will give us eternal life. Is that true? No, it's not. Nobody can ever make themselves good enough. Presenting the gospel in the watered-down way that many of us know and have been trained to do and have been exposed to and et cetera, et cetera, is really presenting half-truth. And a half-truth, when presented as the whole truth, then becomes an untruth. So there are things we must not look for exclusively. And that, I want you to hear that. In other words, as certain or absolute sure signs of eternal life. Because we want to. When we share Christ with somebody, we want them to come to know our Savior. And so we're, we're hanging on anything that we think, yes, that's the real thing. That's the real thing. And we're not saying that some of these things I'm going to mention will be fruit. We must make these distinctions. In other words, we can't look for outward morality exclusively that this guy was saved. Was the rich young ruler saved? No, but he was about as outwardly moral as anybody on the planet. What about religious enthusiasm? The rich young ruler was obviously disciplined and he certainly searched for purity. What about having correct information? The rich young ruler did not argue with Jesus after his sin was exposed. Did you notice that? And he realized what entrusting himself to Jesus would really cost him. He didn't see the value of knowing God Almighty personally. That that would be so much better. It was what he was made for. And that's where people get hung up. What about serious conviction? The rich young ruler showed great sorrow over not being able to meet the standard. He was moved, but he was not changed. What about the doubts then of professing Christians who wonder that they've really been saved? They wonder whether walking down the aisle, raising their hand, praying a prayer, throwing a pine cone into the campfire, whether that really constituted faith. Doing those things or one of those things may be a way of showing that what God has done in your heart. There is no doubt about that. 
Many of you could say that that was the way you showed it. But basing your assurance on doing that thing instead of on what God has done in Christ for you, that's very dangerous. And it's a very subtle difference sometimes. But this question is an important question. Have I repented and believed? Just be careful when you respond to this question that you don't go back to that misleading progression we listed earlier, thinking that saying a prayer is what saved you instead of relying on the Holy Spirit's witness in you through the light of God's word. The question has never been, and I hear this, the question has never been, can you lose your salvation? If God is the one who regenerates and saves, answer that. Is he? You can't do it yourself. If God is the one who does that, which is what the Bible teaches is so, then the true believer is absolutely secure and safe in God's hands in Christ himself. The real question is, are you truly saved? Are you a new creation with a disposition and a desire toward the one who saved you? Is your hope in him or in the idols of your heart? It is Christ, his person and work. Is that what you glory in? Or do you glory in your own efforts and your own amount of understanding? Do you glory in Christ, his person and work? Because you know your offense to a holy God can only be paid for and forgiven by Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. That's the real question. You see, in our day, this is a quote from Ken from many years ago. Christ is being presented as the means to worship the idols of our own hearts. Which means the gospel has been warped and tells people that Christ is the means or the way to get whatever it is you want. You know, because God loves you so much that he wants you to have everything you really want. But Jesus is not the means or the way to get whatever it is you desire. He's the one who's paid for sin by dying in the believer's place. He's the one whose righteousness we believers are clothed in as we stand before the throne of the holy God. The believer worships, serves, loves, knows Jesus Christ through the light of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not about us trying to negotiate a deal with God so we can continue to do whatever it is we want to do and still think that we have an insurance policy to keep us from hell. There is no such deal. And thinking that way leads straight to judgment in hell. Why? Because a true believer will not devote his life to this lie. But we may know many who have. How many souls have been led to vain confidence by a man-made evangelistic formula? How many are sent home from evangelistic services with a calmness and should have gone away grieved and disturbed like the rich young ruler. We don't know what happened to him, but at least we know he went away knowing he couldn't get there and that he was not there. How many unsaved children have been given false assurance 
So they then cease later to seek God's salvation. The false peace of today's salesmanship evangelism will kill conviction before it can do its God-intended work. Being convicted is not a bad thing, but it makes you feel bad. So in our culture, what? It's wrong. We can't stand it. We don't want anybody to realize that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. I know it should be obvious because a lot of people that we're talking about like this have lives that are just so messed up. How could you not realize this? Sin is deceitful, is it not? Now in the rest of this section of chapter 10 down through verse 31, Jesus uses this encounter with the rich young ruler to teach his disciples more about entering the kingdom of God. Is that interesting at this point? I hope so. Would you please stand if you're able as I read verses 23 through 31 of Mark 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark 10, starting at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands, and get this, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. You know, one of the heartbreaks in my life is knowing a guy that discipled early, ended up being a pastor, a missionary, and right now, verse 30. He takes, in a way, that means what? If you believe in Christ and follow him, you can have anything you want. Now in this time, a hundredfold, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands. Could that be literal? It might be. Some of you are very blessed. Some of us are with wealth and possessions, and it's neat to be able to use those for the glory of God. But it also means something else, does it not? How many people know the blessings of being a part of a local church that has become your, now our culture's favorite word, because anything means this, family. People that love you, accept you for what and who you are, who help you, who pray for you, who provide for you, who are faithful to you, who we have to learn to get along with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's part of what this means big time. It also points somewhere else. It points to all the saints gathered for eternity. Jesus uses his encounter with the rich young ruler to teach a general truth. And what is the main point here? Salvation is dependent upon God. It is impossible for any of us 
to attain on our own. In one sense, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We know that's, that's in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6.10. In another sense, you could substitute an angry person, an adulterous person, a disobedient person, etc., etc., in the place of a rich person here. Any sinful attitude that keeps a person enslaved and in bondage makes it very difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' day, many believed that riches and wealth were, were a sign of God's blessing. So when Jesus states emphatically that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, and I'm not going to get into the long debate about whether it was really the eye of a needle or a gate or there's a lot. You get the point. The point is pretty clear. That it's easier than, than to enter the kingdom of God. It's The disciples' astonishment here can be understood. They rightly asked the, the, right, the right question. Can, can, who then can be saved? Then can anybody be saved? The disciples got the point that with man salvation is impossible. John 1.13, all those who ever believed on Jesus were born spiritually. Not of blood, which is by your birth, inheriting salvation because you have a believing parent or grandfather who was a preacher. Not of the will of the flesh, which means by your own efforts to attain salvation or work for it. Nor the will of man. What does that mean? It means by your own choice or volition or will, making your own decision but of God. So the disciples asked this question, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, most of the evangelistic world today misunderstands much of this whole process. We hear this what we hear is this that god has already done what he can to save people so now he's standing by observing what sinners will do decide to do with his son about salvation and god has treated it as if his spirit was not in the world to convict sin reveal christ and regenerate people And now sinners must exercise the power of their natural wills. And if you can present a presentation that is powerful enough, that is the greatest illustrations, and that makes you feel like you have to, then people will make the right choice. Here's a quote from a handbook on evangelizing children, actually from decades ago which is really scary to see how long this has been going on. Uh, From a handbook on how to evangelize children, we must get the child to accept salvation. It's not enough to tell the child that he or she should accept Christ. We must get them to do it then and there. Another related and very popular misunderstanding is that God gives his prevenient grace to help you get over the hump of not believing to the point of believing. The focus is still on your decision, but in this scenario, God gives you a little helpful push. Now, we need to make a distinction right here, so I hope you're tuned in. To be clear, receiving Jesus is an act of the human will. But if you're confused, it's because you're asking the wrong question. The correct question that gets to the point is, how does that will come 
to trust the Savior? That's the question. The disciples understood Jesus' point. That's why they said, then who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With man, it is, this is impossible. But with God, not. No, it's all things are possible with God. In other words, God can so change a sinner's heart that he or she will sell all and follow Christ in the example of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler's ruler will, his will could not drag him into the kingdom. Neither could his intelligence, neither could his emotions. Only God could give him a new heart, a heart quickened, made alive, regenerated by the sovereign power of God. Paul explains this in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and then verses 4 through 10. Actually, we could read that whole passage. It is one of the most incredibly powerful, clarifying passages in the Bible. But I'm going to read this. Listen carefully to the language used to describe how a spiritually dead person, dead, who can't do anything to even approach God, which is everybody who does not believe in God, that is our state, is made spiritually alive to live in Christ. That's the question. How does our being, How do I become alive so that I can make a willful decision and believe in in Christ by faith? Well, listen to Paul. He's talking to people in the church of Ephesus who were believers, or at least professing believers. These are believers. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through Christ and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The only way that happens is if you're born again from above. Nicodemus is going, What do you mean I got to be born again? That's impossible. He was right. You can't crawl back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. He's talking about spiritual birth which is only possible if God does what? Makes you alive spiritually. That's the whole point. A sinner's only hope is to call on God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. This teaching shocks most of us. Most of us get angry when we finally realize that's what God's saying. We get angry for a couple of reasons. One reason is because we want to be part of it. We want to be part of this, and it really bugs us that we can't be. The other reason is a little more despairing to me, not encouraging, Why haven't I ever been taught this? 
I've been in church my whole life. I know I believe in Christ. But I've always thought that it was my decision that got me over the hump. You couldn't make that decision unless God made you alive first with a disposition towards God. You were dead first. Dead people don't make decisions. It is proper to reason with people and to persuade people. Try to and ask. Give your heart to telling them the truth about Christ and evangelism. But there will be no response unless God in his grace attends with enabling power the words that we speak. Our evangelism must be based on dependence upon God. Our hope of results must be in him. So why speak to the dead? Everybody understand what I'm getting at? People who don't know Christ are spiritually dead. Why speak to them? Well, remember when Jesus raised Lazarus? When Lazarus walked out of the tomb in his grave clothes, he had indeed exercised his will in obeying Jesus' voice. Come forth, he did. But that could be done only as God quickened or made him alive spiritually. Here, the example was a physical one to illustrate this. God gave him new life. And Lazarus' response to Jesus was the result and evidence of God's sovereign act of resurrection. It's God's purpose to raise dead sinners to life through our preaching and proclamation of the gospel to whoever. Only God, sovereignly working through a faithful messenger, can raise the dead to life. Um, Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the key. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil being, after being captured by him to do his will. And in verse, verses 28 through 31 here, we hear Peter saying, See, we've left everything, followed you. And Jesus says, I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters, mother, father, children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive. And then there's the rest of it finished with, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus answers Peter's question with forthrightness, does he not? He gets right after it. Will following Jesus be worth it? Those of you that know him, most of you, is it worth it? Are you saying that right now with whatever's going on in your life? Is it worth it to know him? Know his presence? Know that he is on his throne? Know that his plan is much bigger than us? We don't get half of it. Is it? Even if we're called to actually give up all and leave all for his sake. This promise is hard for us to grasp because we are so tethered to this world. Speaking to myself and all of y'all, perhaps we all need to learn the meaning of what Christian hope really is. Hebrews 11 gives us a consistently straightforward look at what people of true faith have always held as their hope. Everybody's familiar. This is the chapter of what? Heroes of the faith who demonstrated their faith. But after listing a bunch of people in the Old Testament there in Hebrews 11, listen to what is written in verses 13 through 16 about this whole situation and see if you even get what he's saying. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city beyond description. And who is there and who will be with us for eternity? The King of kings, the Lord of lords. All will be right beyond our imagination and fulfillment. Peace, joy, because growth in knowing Christ in a state in which there's no sin, anything corrupt, can only be indescribable. He is our hope. He has prepared a place for us. And in the now, right now, the body of Christ is designed to provide a little taste of heaven and give us the encouragement that God knows we need exactly at the right time. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a what a convicting passage as we see the truth of who you are. We see Jesus expressing love for a spiritually dead man who was so tied to his idol they couldn't even enjoy the possibility of being in the presence of your son, the Lord and King Jesus Christ. We are so easily deceived. We are so easily making priorities out of things that shouldn't even be on the list. We constantly confess that we do not recognize your gifts to us, even in the midst of travail. But Lord, being yours, being in Christ, knowing your presence, having him as our hope, we know that that is what fulfills us. That's what you created us for, was to know you and enjoy you forever. We ask that you'd show us the barriers in our own lives even now. The sin that we cling to, the hopes that are not tied to you. We pray for the wisdom to use our blessings by first acknowledging you as the giver and second, how we could use those blessings to bless others. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.